All to Him I owe. The true statement. We have been considering Christ, the, the shadow of Christ, um, this entire year. Um, looking at a, a bigger theme, and that is focusing on a Christ. And I try to remind you of it um, almost every week. Um, just to remind you of where we're going with this and what the intent is. And the, the, to look at Christ throughout this entire thing. And the, the shadow of Christ is just the beginning phase of it. Knowing that Christ coming was not a um, something new that God just thought of at the, at the spur, but we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundations of the world were laid, Christ died for us. And so, before God had ever made the foundations of the earth, before He ever made the heavens and the earth, He had already determined that Jesus Christ was going to come and He was going to die for us, which means that before He ever made Adam and Eve, before Adam and Eve ever even thought about sinning, about rebelling against God, that God knew that when he made them that they would, and so that he had already determined the plan that we would be able to be brought back into a right relationship with him, and that he himself, by his grace, would come, pay the penalty of our sin, so that by faith, not by works, but by faith, we could come to him, trusting and believing the the salvation that he has given us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, over these past couple months, we have looked at the shadow of Christ, at least some of them, there, have been, there are so many more that we could go through and just look. But we've looked at some of the highlights coming through the Old Testament here. We've considered Jesus as the Creator and how He was the Lord of creation and the Lord of Sabbath. That We saw Him as a seed of woman, that He would be a human, that He was the Redeemer, that He was the seed of Abraham, the Melchizedekian priest. We saw Him as the Lamb of God as we considered Abraham offering up His son Isaac, His one and only son whom He, he loved, and how that was fulfilled in, in God, how God gave us His only begotten Son, whom he loved. And then we saw Jesus as the way as we considered um, Jacob's ladder and that ladder that was there with the angels ascending and descending. And, and Jesus said to Nathaniel that you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, referring to himself as that, that way that leads into heaven, where heaven comes down to earth and earth comes into heaven, that Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth that we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then we saw, last week, we saw him as the coming king. We saw him as he would be of the seed of Judah, but that he would have that scepter. The scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. And so we spent last week a little bit of time looking at what the word Shiloh potentially could mean. Looking at the the Hebrew in there and and, um, how people have kind of moved that around and try to make it say other things. But as a whole, the purpose is that we know when that king comes, and as we talked about this morning in, in our Sunday school as well, it's kind of fun for me how a lot of these things are dovetailing together, that when he comes, he's not going to just reign with a rod of iron, but with that rod of iron, he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring peace. And so that word Shiloh, coming from Shilah, is the root for shalom of peace. And so it means to have tranquility and rest and peace. And so he is the, the, the king who brings that tranquility, that rest and that peace. Today we want to look at what is referred to as the Passover. An event which is the hallmark, watershed, highlight, whatever big term you want to put for Israel. It is the event that Israel continually goes back to to talk about how they know that God has chosen them to be a people. They go back to their their deliverance. In a passage which we know um, as well, refers to Jesus Christ because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that we're supposed to put aside all the unclean leaven because Christ, our Passover, 
has done that for us. And so Jesus Christ is our Passover. And so we want to look at that today. We want to look at, again, the practical side of it. We want to look at that Passover time with Israel coming out of Egypt and, and the indicators there. But then we want to see prophetically how does that apply to Christ and to us today. And so, first of all, we look at the deliverance of Israel from the domain and the power of sin. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to look at 12 chapters here, okay? not in detail. Okay? So, clearly, these first chapters we're going to fly through. We don't have time um, today to do this. These would be numerous messages all by itself, but the intent is just to see Christ as our Passover, and so we're going to do a gleaning here. But as we look at, um, in, in chapter 1 of Exodus, the first thing we're going to see is we're going to see the situation that Israel was in. What was their situation? Well, we're going to begin reading here in verse 8, okay, verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, Now there arose a new king, or if you would, a new pharaoh, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So let's put all the, the get rid of all the, the them, them, them. Verse 12, but the more they, that is Egypt, afflicted them, that is Israel, the more they, that is Israel, multiplied and grew, and they, that is Egypt, were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, or hardness, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, and in brick, and all manner of service in the field, and all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now, before we come back to that in a moment, I want to I want you to go back, probably a page in your Bible, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Because something that I think that we don't think about a lot, okay, and that I believe is important here as well. Verse 22, start there, it says, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, an interesting thing that Joseph is going to say here, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What do you find is interesting? in that statement that Joseph just made, when he said that God will surely visit you and will deliver you out of this land. They weren't slaves at that point. They could have left. How do you know they weren't slaves? Ah. Do you think he didn't know who Joseph was just because he didn't know who Joseph was? He never heard of Joseph before? Well, Joseph didn't serve in his court. Joseph didn't serve in his court. And so when he said he didn't know of Joseph, it didn't mean that he didn't what? That Joseph necessarily wasn't what? 
alive. Consider Daniel. Not you, Daniel, but the Daniel that you're named after. When Daniel was alive, he went through multiple kings, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar revered Daniel. And when Persia finally took over, Cyrus revealed him as well, revered him as well. But in between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, where was Daniel? He was there, but he was put where? Put aside. In fact, when Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, because Belteshazzar was the name given to Daniel, but when Belshazzar, the king, became king, and he was having a, an orgy, he was having a, a, a drunk fest, um, they were using the, the goblets of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, in that, that feast, and then the hand came out of nowhere, the hand of God, and wrote on the wall. You all know that part, right? And it said, many, many tekel farsin. And they, they, they saw it, but they couldn't understand it. And so they brought in all the wise men, which is interesting, because earlier in the chapter of Daniel, who was the wisest of all the wise men? Daniel. So who would have been brought in? Daniel, but he wasn't. All the false wise men were brought in, and none of them were able to discern what it even said, not to mention what it meant. And finally, when they couldn't figure out what was going on, someone said, well, remember Daniel? You know, your father's advisor? There's none wiser than him. They say that the spirit of the gods are in him. Isn't that what they said about Joseph? That Joseph was the one who was able to discern the dream that no one else could discern, even the wise men? I believe that we have an indicator in Genesis chapter 50 that even in the days of Joseph, there was already um, the oppression beginning in his days. If, he, if they wanted to bury him in Israel, they could have done that. In fact, they buried Jacob in Israel. Do you remember that? Remember they had a big procession and, and they went all the way up to the cave of Machpelah to bury him. But they couldn't do that with Joseph. And Joseph said, God's going to visit you one day, and he's going to deliver you out of this land. And when he does, take my bones with you. Take my bones with you. And so, Israel's situation, God told them that they would be enslaved. He told Abraham, remember, we, we went with Abraham. God tells Abraham that your children are going to go to this other land, and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. 400 years. So I believe that that tyranny, that oppression, already began in the days of, of Joseph. The one who potentially, um, well, not no potentials, that God used to do what? Save Egypt, deliver Egypt, you know, from the, the, the famine that was going to be there on the earth. Now we know that he, God did that in a way to spare his own children, okay? But, so their situation was that they had this, this hard Labor. Look, look at what it says there back in chapter 1 of Exodus. The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. Okay, with rigor, and that is with hardship, with, with um, bitterness. And it said, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Okay, I want you to look at that word. In mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field and all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. The word there for bondage and service and service and serve is really the word, Hebrew word avad, which all it means is 
work. Sometimes we like to put ourselves in this position that, or, you know, that it's really a bad thing when somebody makes me what? Work. <laughs> but what lets us know that this oppression was severe is the words that are used around it. They made him work with what? With rigor. Okay? They, 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 they put it on them. They, 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 they dealt with them with hardship. And, and originally that slavery probably wasn't slavery like we think of slavery. But it began to become that more and more. And so we continue on with this. It said, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the other was Puah. And he said, when, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? But the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, rather than who? Men, right? That they feared God, that he provided households as well for them. So Pharaoh, that is the king, commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river, and every daughter to you shall be, shall be saved alive. And so now all of a sudden the oppression is what? Being heated up. Do, do you get it? It's, it's, it's going more and more. Not only are they having them go into forced labor, if you would, building the these cities and building potentially the, the, um, the pyramids and all these, these wonders of Egypt that we know. Probably Israel was part of that task force. But now, what is the, what is the motivation behind all this? Egypt was what? They were afraid. They were afraid of Israel. And so now they're afraid that they're becoming even more and bigger and bigger in, in all, this, all this bondage, right? And, and so they say now, you know, they tell the midwives, kill the sons. Midwives don't do that. They fear God rather than men, so they don't do that. And so now they put it on each of the individual parents to turn around and kill their, their, their own children. And so, so the bondage, the, 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 the forced rule was becoming greater and greater, and greater. A little side note, if I can, okay? I, I don't like to do political comments here. But according to the world standard, how many children should you have? 1.5. kids. I always feel bad for the people who have the half kid. So, now I feel bad for the half kid. Anyways, um, but 1.5 kids, okay? Now, think about it. If you have 1 to 1.5 kids, what, is, what happens with your society? it gradually declines, okay? I mean, look at China right now. China is having a, a major problem because they have millions, like I think it's 40 million more young men than they have young women because they're only allowed to have one child. And so they practice, um, what is it when you, if it's a girl, you kill the kill. Selective breeding, yeah, but it's not breeding, but it's <laughs> infanticide, but yeah, but it's, you have the exact word when it's, according to a, uh, uh, a gender. Anyways, but the point is that, so if it's a girl, they end the pregnancy. If it's a boy, they continue with it. Well, now here they are, the generation later that they've practiced this thing, and they've got 40 to 42 million more young men than they have young ladies. Guys can't do something that women can do. Let's have the next generation. So you can have all the men to fight in your army. 
But you haven't, if you haven't got any women, you haven't got any nation to lead. Does that make sense? Now, what do you think is going to happen when people who believe what God says about be fruitful and multiply are fruitful and multiplying? We begin to outnumber them. Okay, and so if, if we have a fashionable average of five kids per family, okay, that may be a little high, but when, I remember when we were at, um, huh? Maybe a little low. Anyways, could be a little low. And uh, I remember when we were at the National Spelling Bee years ago, so it was when Jessica was in sixth grade, I think, so that was many, many moons ago, huh? A lot of water under the bridge. And, and I remember meeting with a man from Ohio and a man from St. Louis, for prayer every night. They were believers, and it was kind of fun. The one guy had seven kids. The other guy had six kids. The one from St. Louis had seven kids. The one from Ohio had six kids, and I only had five at the time, you know? And, uh, and so we looked at um, the guy from Ohio. His name was Bob as well, and we said, so Bob, how does it feel to have just an average family, you know? Because <laughs> he was. One had seven, I had five. He was average. He had only six, and he just kind of chuckled. But think about it. If, if believers who believe what God said about being fruitful and multiply were fruitful and multiplying, how do you think the world eventually would begin to view us? They would be afraid of us. Why? Just the reason, the same reason that many people are afraid of the Muslims. Because the Muslims, now hear what I'm saying, I'm not saying Muslims are godly people, okay? But Muslims are adhering to the plan of God. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. And because they are, what are they doing? They're outnumbering us and taking over the world. Do you get it? Okay? And people are now fearful of the Muslims because along with that being fruitful and multiply, they also believe that they're going to violently take over the, the earth. Okay? But, again, statistically, numer- you know, mathematically, I love math, okay? You do the math on this thing. They're having 1.5. They're in decline. We're having 5, 6, 7, whatever. We're on the rise. Somewhere along the line, Egypt's going to happen here again, right? Okay? They already don't approve of what? Your religion. Saying that there's what? Only one true God. When they have a what? A pantheon of gods that they want to serve. So just as kind of an aside, I just want to kind of put that, make it, um, put that in your mind and think about it. So their situation was that they were building all these wonders of the world for, for the Egyptians. They were being held in, in great oppression. But God began then, at this time, during this oppression, God began their deliverance, a time of deliverance. And it all begins with this timing of killing the babies. When he rises up, raises up this woman and this man who have a birth of a child whose name is Moses. And Moses is born, and his mom and dad say what? We're not going to kill him. We're not going to do it. And so they hide him for months. And then they go and they put him in a little ark and hide him in the river. We know that Miriam hides to the side to find out what happens. We know that Pharaoh's daughter comes and she, she finds, finds Mero, uh, Mero, <laughs> Moses in, in, the, uh, in the little bulrush of the, in the ark there. And she says, oh, this is one of these Hebrew kids. you know." And she doesn't have the heart to kill him either. Isn't that kind of interesting? They don't want to kill him. They want somebody else to kill him. They don't want to kill him. So she, she wants to keep it. It's kind of like a pet, you know. And she wants, to, she wants to keep Moses. And so Miriam happens to be there. She says, do you want me to find you a, a Hebrew midwife? She says, sure. And so who does she happen to find? But Moses' mother. 
And so Moses' mother now, I mean, isn't, isn't this the way God works? When you have faith in God and you trust God, okay? I mean, she gets to raise her own kid. Now, four years, four years, that's what she's got. She's got four years, the first four years, to disciple her son. You know, in our culture today, we don't think the first two or three years are important to our kids at all. But everything, their foundation of what they believe and where they're going to go is inculcated into them, is taught repetitively into them by the time that they're three years old. We got together with George and Phyllis last night, and it, it may be just a small little thing, but Anna's got a favorite book. Anna, what's your favorite book? Polar Bear, Polar Bear. Anna can't read yet, but you wouldn't know that, because she can go through that book verbatim. Polar Bear, Polar Bear, what do you see? Or here, I'm sorry, not see, but here. I hear a lion roaring in my ear. I mean, and so she took it over to Phyllis because she wanted Phyllis to read the book, but she read it for Phyllis, you know, and, and, and go through. And um, anyways, she's four. But through cubbies, what are we doing in cubbies and doing at home? We're inculcating what? The Word of God. And if I ask Anna, Anna says, I love you. And I say, why do you love me? Why do you love me, honey? Because God first loves us. You get it? We want to build within kids by the age of four an understanding for who God is and what relationship He wants for us. Apparently, Yachabed did that for Moshe, for Moses. Because when Moses now goes on, and at the age of four, he has to be handed over to Pharaoh. And do you know what happened from the age of four? We're told from the book of Hebrews that Moses was trained in what? All the wisdom and arts of Egypt. They sought to, over the next 36 years, because he was 40 when he goes into the wilderness. So for the next 36 years, the world is inculcating into him their philosophy. Jacobet had him for four. The world had him for 36 she had him for a tithe. They had him for 90%. In the end, which one won out? God did. God always wins out. And so, so Moses, knowing that he's going to be the deliverer, he senses it, understands it, knows it, is jumping ahead of God's plan. And he kills the Egyptian in, deli- in, in protecting his, his, his brethren, They reject him as a deliverer, and he runs out into the wilderness. And as he spends 40 more years now in the wilderness, now I don't know about you, but sometimes I I felt like the seven and a half years for me has been a wilderness, okay, in planting this church. In my mind, when I started this church, I thought three to five years from now, I'll be full-time. You know, the church is going to be grown, you know, we're going to be doing these these things, We'll, 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 we'll have a facility, you know, we'll be moving forward. You know, here we are seven and a half years later, almost eight years later, and it's not there. And so there's certain times I understand this. And Moses clearly at some point probably felt what? I was mistaken. He was going on with what? With life. He had a wife. He had kids. He was enjoying his life in the wilderness. But one day, God came to him. In this preparation thing, God came to him and did what? He spoke to him. He woke him up and said, Moses, 
I want to use you. And that's chapter 3. When God, God comes to him, and it begins to speak to him in this burning bush, this bush that was burning, and yet it, it did not. In verse 7, Yahweh says to him, He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for now I, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. You understand? You've got to make sure you understand words here. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from out of the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all those other termites. And he says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. You get it? God says, I know it's happening. I know they're being oppressed. Okay? And I'm going to come down. Verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, uh, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So God said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? And I shall say to them, What shall I say to them? And God said to them, I am. I am who I am. You shall tell the children of Israel, Yahweh, I am, has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. And so he tells them, I'm coming down. I have heard the oppression. I, I've seen the oppression. I've heard the cries. I'm coming down, and I'm going to deliver them. So now you get and go. How many times we think what? Like Moses, way back 40 years before, that I'm going to be the what? The deliverer. I'm the guy. I'm doing it. And God says, no, you're not ready now. Because why? Because you think you're the guy. So he takes him 40 years and puts him in the wilderness for 40 years for Moses to realize what? He's nothing. He's a shepherd. He's lost it all. You used to be that prince of Egypt, quote unquote, right? But now you're nothing. You're nothing. And God says what? Now you're ready. I understand it. I think a lot of us need to, to deal with that. If you think you're nothing, you're ready for God to use you. Because when you're weak, He is strong. So if you think that you're slow of speech, Moses, God will put the words in you. If you think, Moses, that you can't do it and that no one's going to receive you, don't worry about it because they're not receiving you, they're receiving Him. They're receiving God. Do you get it? If you think you're, you're weak and you lack power, that's good. Because you're not the one who's doing the miracles anyway. And in our congregation, we've got lots of Moseses. You just have to be willing to do what? Get off the mountain and go. And trust that God is going to use you. And so, God's next step in that deliverance, the preparation of Moses, is sending him back to Pharaoh. And what's the very first thing that happened when Moses goes to Pharaoh? What did Moses say? Oh, man, I can't. 
Wow, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I know I'm speaking Isaiah now instead of Pharaoh, right? <laughs> Pharaoh didn't do that, did he? What did he tell him? Get on my face. Who do you think you are? I don't even recognize you. And then what happened? What happened to the people of Israel? They got it worse. They thought they were oppressed before. They ain't seen nothing yet. Now their quota remains with the bricks that they've got to make, but he's not going to give them any what? Any straw. Now they've got to go find their own straw. So they've got to find their own straw and make as many bricks. And they said, we can't do it. And they said, well, yes, you can, and you are. So God begins this work of deliverance in them. And so God uses then Moses. And Moses at first kind of questions God and says, you know, look at what's happening. God, you said I'm going to come down here and I'm going to deliver these people. And, and Pharaoh's not impressed at all. And God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden it. I'm going to, I'm going to the idea is make it dense. Not that he's, he's necessarily saying to Pharaoh, you're not going to be able to believe. But basically handing himself over to himself, over to Pharaoh to himself. And it's just going to be densed. He's going to let Pharaoh do his own thing. And so he hardens Pharaoh's heart in that, and, and Moses begins to put out the what? The ten plagues. Starting with, does anybody remember what the first plague is? What is it? The blood. Okay? The water turning into blood. They worship the Nile. And now all of a sudden the Nile is turned into blood. God instantly does a, does a frontal attack on the gods of Egypt. It's a fun thing. And so as you go through each of the, the flies and the gnats and the frogs and the, and the hail and the darkness and all that, God is, is demonstrating, as he said, I'm going to demonstrate my power. Not just for Egypt, not just for Israel, but for the whole world to see. The whole world is going to know when I'm done with Egypt that I am God and that I am God alone. And not only are they going to know that I'm God and I'm a God alone, but they're going to know that what? You are my people. Isn't that awesome stuff? You know, you may be dis- disrespected, put down, oppressed right now in the eyes of the world. But one day, the day's going to come. Do you know what's going to happen? When Christ is going to return. And if you're here, you're going to be caught up together in the clouds. Right? And then seven years later, what's going to happen? He's going to come back again at the Battle of Armageddon. And he's going to destroy the nations that have risen up against God. You are on the winning side. You may not feel that sometimes. And if I was over in China and Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Sudan and some of these other places where Christians are being oppressed and killed for their, for their, their faith, it may be a hard thing to, to remember. But the fact is the word of God is true. And that there is a deliverer and he will deliver. And he already has. So we have this plagues, the plagues of Egypt. And finally then, we come to this final plague, which we refer today as the Passover. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. But incorporated with the death of the firstborn was this Passover, where God instructed the children of Israel, in Exodus chapter 12, where God instructed the children of Israel to take a lamb, without blemish, to slaughter it on, at twilight on the 14th day of Nisan, and, then, and to roast it. To, well, first of all, take the blood and, and take the, 
put the blood upon the lentils of the doors, okay, upon the doorposts, and then they were supposed to roast that lamb, and they were supposed to eat it that night, preparing to flee the next day. And if there was too much lamb, if there was too much lamb meat for just their family, they were supposed to invite a neighbor over, because none of it was supposed to remain until the morning. And whatever remained, it was supposed to be burnt up. Do you remember the details? Okay. And so, during that night, the angel of death came, the angel of death came, and he looked at the lentils, looked at the doorposts, and if there was blood applied to the doorposts, then he would pass over it. But if it wasn't there, he would enter in, and every firstborn son would be killed. From the slave all the way up to Pharaoh. And there would be great wailing throughout the nation of Egypt. And the next day, Israel would flee. They would talk to their, their neighbors. Get, they, would, they, would, they would pummel them without ever drawing a sword. And their neighbors would give them gold, silver, and precious metals and, and all these things and be telling them, go, go, go. But then they took the southern route and they got down to the Red Sea, and they were blocked. By that time, the Egyptian army decided they were going to come after them. They lost their slaves. What were they thinking? They come after them. God wanted that to occur, right? And so Moses, God uses Moses to part the Red Sea. They walk down through the, the dry ground. The, the, the Egyptian army comes in pursuit after them, after the, the pillar of cloud is lifted and moves to the other side of the children of Israel. And while the, the, the army of Egypt is is crossing through the Red Sea, what happens? It closes up. The door closes. And, and they are destroyed. And it's amazing. There is a man who has done great research um, under the parts of the Red Sea that's there, under that, that, the second little finger there. And there are actually chariot wheels that have been discovered in the silt under the Red Sea, like would have been used in the days of Egypt. There is proof of the crossing. Now, secular science is going to want to tell you that. Secular news is going to show you that. But you can find it on the web. It's there. The guy has a, one big site. He's taken years to, to discover the route. Okay, And they've done much diving in there. And so it's been found. And there's actually a big beachhead that could have been used at that time and everything. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I think that there is that God has left evidence for us that's out there. Do you understand? I think there's evidence of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. That the world... Literally does what to? They suppress. Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth. Choosing to worship the creation rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. And so we have this Passover Israel where this lamb was slain so that the firstborn son would be spared. Now we know that later in the wilderness when God is giving them their laws that there is also then a law that is placed out about the redemption of the firstborn son. That every time there was a firstborn son that they would have to give an offering for their son. Because, again, the same concept, that God had delivered them and God had spared their firstborn son. Okay? And that's important for us to remember. Okay? So we have this deliverance of Israel, and then God gives them then, in that Passover celebration, a memorial from Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Okay, I'm not reading it, but you can look at that. In Exodus chapter 12, that they're told that this memorial that he's given them, this commemoration, is supposed to be remembered how long? Throughout all generations. Throughout all generations. And he gives them specifics that they couldn't do at this moment, because they're being delivered that night. But he tells them, and we'll see this in a moment when we come to Jesus, 
that he tells them that on the tenth day of Nisan, that they're supposed to select this lamb without blemish, and for the next four days they're supposed to examine it to make sure that it, was, that it is a perfect lamb. And on the fourteenth day of twilight, they're supposed to uh, sacrifice that lamb. And at the evening on the fifteenth day, they're supposed to, to eat it as part of the beginning of the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you can read about in Leviticus 21. Okay? It's not like a lot of details, but those details are incredibly important because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those feasts which we're going to see. And so, every year, Jews, Israelis, they hold this commemoration of Passover. It's coming up in April this year. And every time they have their children ask the questions, Father, why do we do this? And at that time, the Father recalls to them what? How God delivered Israel from Egypt. Thousands of years ago, almost 4,000 years ago, about 3,500 to 4,000 years ago, they are recalling what God had done for them as a people. How many times when there's a rainbow in the sky, do you teach your kids why the rainbow is there? That God had made a berit, right, Andrew? The berit, the, the covenant, the agreement with all the earth that no longer would he ever flood the earth again, the whole earth, and destroy the earth with a flood. And he set a rainbow in the sky as a sign of the Berit, as a sign of the covenant that he had made, not only with his people Israel, because they weren't around then, but with all the earth. What an awesome thing. If God remembers the covenant that he made over 4,000 years ago, do you think he remembers the covenant that he made 2,000 years ago? And Jesus said what? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I'm going to come again. So I can receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made us a promise. It's a promise. Sometimes we act like it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. The Deliverer is coming as He already has come. So, what's the, what's the uh, prophetic side of this? Well, the prophetic side is the deliverance of believers, not just Israel from the, from the domain and tyranny, um, the domain and power of Egypt, but from believers from the domain and power of, of sin. And we note the same thing then, What's our situation? Well, the Bible tells us, in a sense, that we are in tyranny to Egypt, or sin. And so, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Okay? Well, put that in conjunction with what is stated in Romans chapter 3, and that is, all have what? Sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all that commit sin are slaves of sin, what does it say about us? There is a slavery that is there. And so we're told in Romans chapter 6, which we read this morning, that to whom you offer yourself as a slave to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading unto death or of obedience leading unto righteousness. And so we are enslaved to sin. Now, 
I understand I'm talking to mostly believers, and most of you as believers are saying, but I've been released from that. We'll get there. But some of you today may never accept that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you really still are living in slavery. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that this morning in Sunday school. We went there from Isaiah and referred to it. It says, And you hath he made alive, or quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Spirit now works among the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, doing the works of the flesh, Okay, that we all were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. We all had our conversation in the world and in wickedness and in, 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 in sin, just as everybody else does. And so we're no different than anybody else. We have been enslaved to, to sin. That's our situation. We're, we have this slavery thing that's going on. And so, Romans 6 then, Do you not know to whom you present yourself as slaves have been? But he goes on and says then in verse 17 and 18, he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart, right here, the form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is a huge statement for me. As Americans... We have, we, we have totally sought to emancipate ourselves from the concept of being a slave. You know, we've had emancipation, so we're not slaves. The Bible says you are slaves. You're serving something. You're either going to serve sin, or you're going to serve God. And so it's almost like Joshua, at the end of the book of, 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 of Joshua, where he says to the nation of Israel, Choose ye this day whom you will what? You serve. In other words, you're going to serve Someone or something. So choose which one you're going to serve. If serving Yahweh, if serving the Lord seems not right to you, then you look out among the gods and decide which one you're going to serve. Because ultimately you're going to what? You're going to serve one. Even if you are, in today's vernacular, enlightened, knowing that there are no gods other than you and you serve yourself, you become what? God. You're still going to you understand? And so that's what Paul's referring to. You're either going to serve sin, the flesh, or you're going to serve God. So choose. What are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? But God be thanked that you obeyed the form of doctrine from the heart and you were delivered, being set free from sin, so that you could be slaves of, of righteousness. That's the situation that we're in. The same situation that Israel was in back at those times, that Jesus came to what? To set us free. So John 8, 31, 36, which we already read from John 8, that you were all slaves of sin. But Jesus said to those Jews who believed on him, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So we have this deliverance then coming from Jesus Christ. And so as we have the picture here again of the, the angel of death, that, that was coming over the, the land of Egypt and, and, and looking for the blood that's applied to the door, so the same way that deliverance has come to us. How did Jesus, we know that Jesus is the one who delivered us, how did he deliver us? Well, first of all, he delivered us, he was the firstborn son. Remember when, when God told Abraham to offer up Isaac, and then he stopped him short, Abraham had said to Isaac, what? God will what? He'll provide himself the lamb or provide himself as the lamb. It depends on how you want to state that. But anyways, the point is that God's going to do it. And so when he gets up there and he has Isaac on the altar, God comes and says, don't do it. Now I know you, you, you fear me. 
And, and, and so he, he gives him a ram that he could do that. And so God, though, we're told in John 3.16, loved the world in this manner that he gave his what? Only begotten son, the one whom he loved, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so God himself gave his firstborn son. And so in first in first Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter one, we read about Jesus being the firstborn among creation. And that he was the one who then died for us. And so he took the place of the firstborn. Do you get it? If you are a firstborn son, I'm a secondborn, so it doesn't apply to me, right? But if you are a firstborn son, this applies to you. Because, again, if you're not under Jesus, you're under the law. Yes? And so for you, according to the law, there, there needs to be a what? An offering made. Either you die, or a sacrifice is given. Do you get it? That's the whole point. You've got to be under the what? You've got to be under the blood. You've got to be under the blood. And so... Jesus was the firstborn who then died for us forever. Not only was he the firstborn then, but he was also the what? We're told, which I already shared from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's our Passover lamb. He's the Pascal lamb. In fact, does anybody know when, when Jesus died? The firstborn son there. When did Jesus die? Hmm. Huh? During Passover. Good. That's, okay, that's good. That's generically where we're going. During Passover. He died at twilight on Nisan 14. This is important. This is why I kept going back to Exodus 12, telling you about Exodus 12, Exodus 12, Exodus 12. Details are important. Though I don't have time to read all that, I want you to read it. Check me out. Make sure the details. Go to Leviticus 21. I think it's Leviticus 21 where all the feasts are. Can you look and check me out, Steve, on that? Because I want to make sure I give the right reference there. But Leviticus 21 was talking about all the different feasts of Israel, okay, that... You're talking about the, the Shabbat. You're talking about the Passover. You're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're talking about the first, the Feast of First Fruits. You're talking about the Feast of Weeks. You're talking about the Trumpets. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of all these feasts. That's why they were there, and that's why God was having them continually do that. Well, what do we know about the Feast of Passover? Okay. Well, we're told that on Nisan 10, the tenth day of Nisan, the Lamb was chosen. The Lamb was chosen. Now, what's interesting here? Is that you can go into the, the New Testament, and I don't, again, have time for this. I developed this in other messages at other times, and if you're really interested in this, I can show it to you and develop it for you. Okay? But we're, we can see in the New Testament, backtracking from the day that Jesus was crucified, that it was indeed on the 10th day of Nisan that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. You know, when, when everybody was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were, they were pulling down the palm branches and putting their clothes on the ground. And they received him as the what? The king. Unbeknownst to them, do you know what they were doing? They were choosing the lamb. And for the next four days, until the 14th day when the lamb was slaughtered, Israel was supposed to do what, according to Exodus 12? Examine the lamb to make sure that it was without blemish. Now, it's really interesting because without blemish, this is kind of an aside, okay? In order for the temple to be built in Israel, which they desire to do on the Temple Mount, there has to be something else that occurs prior to that. Does anybody know what it is? They have to find a red heifer. Now, they've had a red heifer. They actually moved 
years ago, they actually took a herd from Louisiana, and they took it over to Israel. And so this red heifer has to be born in, on the land. And it has to be what? Perfect. A few years ago, they had one born. But they found a white hair on its rear end. So it wasn't perfect anymore. It couldn't be the red heifer. See, the red heifer has to be sacrificed, and its ashes have to be joined with water so they can sprinkle everything and cleanse it. And so once they've cleansed it, then they can do all the rest of the stuff and they can have their temple. Okay? There's a lot of fun stuff that's going on right now behind the scenes that we just, we just don't, because the, the world's not going to report it. The secular world's not going to report all this stuff going on. They've already got all the temple utensils ready. There's a faction over there that's waiting, that's ready. I mean, we, we stand at the cusp of, of, of prophecy being fulfilled. It's so exciting, and we just kind of go lackadaisically on with life, and we just forget it all is all going on. So anyways, but the same way, so for four days during the Passover celebration, they're making sure that the lamb was perfect, so when they offered it, it would be received. Do you know what happened between the 10th day of Nisan, that first day of the week, when Christ entered into the Jerusalem, and the 14th day of Nisan? You can go and check me out later. Read through the book of John and Matthew and Mark and make sure of this in Luke. What was going on during those days? Where was Jesus at? He was at the temple being examined. He was being grilled by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. They were all trying to make him stumble. They were trying to find a flaw in him. But they all walked away ashamed finding no flaw. I mean, they thought they had them with the coin. You know, hey, well, what should we do with this coin, you know? You know, should we, should we pay taxes or not? They thought that we got them in a conundrum here because there's an image on that, and so we're not supposed to worship any images, right? We got them down pat, you know? Here we are. He's going to be the, the, the deliverer of Israel. Clearly, he's going to say what? You can't pay taxes to, to man, right? And Jesus takes it and just blows them away and says, Who's, whose face is that? Well, it's, it's Caesar's face. Well, it must belong to Caesar then, so give to Caesar what's Caesar. But give to God that which is God. You know what the, picture, the point he was making? Make the, take the analogy. Caesar's image may be on that coin, so give it to Caesar. But whose image is on you? You're made in the image and likeness of God. So who should you give yourself to? To God. Do you get it? Blew them away. I mean, here they are trying to be this political party, trying to do this stuff, and God looks at them and says, you're so worried about the, the mammon, you're so worried about the things that money buys, you're so worried about the power and the prestige of money, but you forgot whose image you really are. Quit worrying about money. Quit worrying about the, the bigger house, the, the bigger car, the bigger this, the bigger that, the better food. Worry about your relationship with God, is what he's telling them. Give to God that which is God. And so on the 14th day of Nisan, at twilight, we're told that the lamb would be slaughtered at twilight. That was defined. That was from three, what we refer to as 3 o'clock in the afternoon to 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay? That was Jewish. The Jewish day began when? Does anybody know? In the evening. Okay? Evening and then morning. Okay, it was first day. Second day. Third day. Evening, morning. Okay? And so evening to them, technically, sundown was 6 o'clock, okay? For those who started operating upon the clock rather than the sun, you understand? So 6 p.m. in in the Roman mindset, in the Western mindset, 6 o'clock would have been the next day, according to the Jewish calendar, 
And so from 3 to 6 o'clock was twilight. Does anybody, which was 9 o'clock, okay, the, the ninth hour, okay, because the, the hour began at daylight at 6 o'clock, and so the sixth hour was noon to us. The ninth hour was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Does anybody know when Jesus died? At the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus was crucified. From the sixth to the ninth hour, he hung on the cross. And at the ninth hour is when he asked for the drink. And he said, Tetelestai, it is forever completed. And he gave up his ghost. And he gave up the spirit. And said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. And at that very moment that he died, there was an earthquake. And the, and the, and the veil in the temple ripped in two from the top to the bottom. Because God was the one who was ripping the veil in two. Do you, what do you think happened at the temple? At that moment, when there was an earthquake rocking Jerusalem, and in the Holy of Holies, they hear, Hop! and they go running in to find out that the veil is being torn between the holiest place and the holy of holy place. What do you think happened with all the, the sacrifices that are going on at that moment? A little bit of interruption, I think. <laughs> a little disruption happening in the, in, in the temple at that moment. And what was God saying? I don't need your sacrifices anymore. The Passover lamb was sacrificed. Now, what's fun, and this is kind of aside from Passover, but within Passover, technically, was the 14th day of Nisan. Okay? It had become the day of preparation then. It's called, so in the book of John, sometimes you'll read about the day of preparation. Okay? Because beginning the 15th day of Nisan, for the next eight days, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so, um, for seven days, I'm sorry. But Passover today is seen to be an eight-day celebration. But Passover is not eight days. Passover is only one day. And then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days. But because they were right next to each other, they've become amalgamated into one. But there is a third feast for Israel that actually occurs within the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's called the Feast of... First fruits. Was it Leviticus 21? Was I right? Leviticus 23. Okay, Leviticus 23. And you can look at it and check it out there. Okay, and it says that after the, the Sabbath, the first, first day of the week after Passover, would be the Feast of First Fruits. So, you can believe what you want. I believe Jesus died on a Thursday. Okay, I think that is supported biblically. Okay, I believe he entered into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, on the first day of the week. And then four days after that, the, t- the 14th day of Nisan, would be what we refer to as Thursday, okay? And so that that Friday would be the first day of unleavened bread, which, according to Leviticus 23, was a a holy convocation. It would be a high Sabbath, and they would do no work on that. And the next day would have been Saturday, which would have been a weekly Shabbat, which they wouldn't do any work on. Which in Matthew 28, when it says that Mary came after the Sabbath, in the Greek it actually says after the Sabbaths, plural, but the Jews, the, the, the Greeks wouldn't understand that. They think, well, that's a weekly Sabbath. But no, according to the Jews, there would have been two Sabbaths that week. There would have been Friday, there would have been Saturday. Okay? And three days later then, because he would have been in, in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Okay? So Thursday, you go to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Which to us, the first day of the week would be three days. Was Nisan 17, which according to then Leviticus 23, and according to the Old Testament, would be the Feast of first fruits. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus is the first fruit of the, the dead, of the resurrection. And so that would have been the day of the resurrection when Jesus was risen from the, 
the dead as the first fruits. It's fun. This is exciting stuff. Jesus is your Passover. He's delivered you from the tyranny of Egypt, of sin in your life. You don't have to sin. I don't have to sin. If I sin, I'm just like the Israelites who do what? Who keep looking back and want to go back to Egypt. Oh, the leeks and the onions and the melons that we ate in Egypt. Oh, they were so wonderful. You know, they forget what? They forget the oppression. They, they forget the tyranny that they were under. And oh, they, they want to turn back. And we're like that so many times. God saved us from our sin. Delivered us from the tyranny of it. From the domain and power of it. But we choose to what? To turn back. So what's our memorial? Israel had a memorial. It's one and the same. And we're going to celebrate it next week. We refer to it as communion or the Lord's Supper. We're told the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, that he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take it, this is a remembrance of my body which is broken for you. And then after the supper he took the cup and when he had blessed it, he gave it to the disciples and said, take and drink. For this cup is the redemption that is in my blood for the remission of sins of many. And he said, but no longer will I drink of the fruit of this cup until I drink it with you in paradise. When we get together and we celebrate communion, we really are doing a celebration, a remembrance of Passover. Passover. And it's the same celebration in which we understand that because of the blood of Jesus Christ being sprinkled upon the doorposts of our hearts, that when the angel of death passes over or comes, he will pass over us. Not because of my righteousness, not because of my goodness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been applied to my heart. And so he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might have the righteousness of God on me. Isn't that cool stuff? And so our memorial that we have should be the same thing as they have for the children of Israel. It was not only to remember, it was also to instruct. When we have communion, it's not only to remember, it's also to instruct. And I challenge you, moms and dads, to take that monthly occurrence as a time to instruct, a time to instruct, a time to teach your children why do we do what we do. For me, it's a, I wouldn't mind if we had it every week, it's a time for me to remember what Jesus Christ has done for me and what he desires for me to do with my life. He desires me to be holy, even as he is holy. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that resurrection And it gives us the victory, not only over death, but over what? Sin. Jesus Christ has delivered us from our Egypt. Are you turning back? Or are you living in the light of of the deliverance? Have you been emancipated from the domain and power of sin? Who are you serving? If you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, I I don't like... You know, I, sometimes I'll talk about accepting what he's done for you, that kind of stuff. But I recognize the fact that within accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're accepting him as your what? Your Lord. As your Master. You're giving your life to him. Because again, you can't serve what? Two Masters. 
You're going to serve one. Which master are you serving? If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted the salvation that he's offered for you, then you're still serving Satan as your master. Whether you know it or not. Whether you realize it or not. But for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, who have given your life to him, I ask you the question, who are you serving? Are you turning back? Are you looking at the leeks and the onions of your past? Yearning after that which is not best. When God has for you, before you, a land full of milk and honey. But so many times we'd rather take the leeks and the onions over the milk and honey. Next week's communion, as I said, I want to challenge you to take some time this week and considering Christ's payment for your, for your freedom, for your deliverance, for your emancipation, and consider your commitment to him. Who are you serving? Are you serving the gods of Egypt? Or are you serving the one true God? Are you turning back? Or are you moving forward by faith, looking into what God has done for us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I know that you are a God of justice. You are a God of righteousness. You are a holy God. You desire for us to serve you in righteousness and holiness. And you have delivered us from the bondage and tyranny, the domain and power of sin, that we may be free to serve. Lord, truly too many times we, we take this liberty that you've given to us and use it as a cloak for lasciviousness and for our own flesh. Forgive us for that. Lord, help us to see that you have actually liberated us from sin that we can serve you more fully and serve one another more fully. Lord, help us to have that mind of Christ, that one another mindset. And Lord, help us to exalt you. I pray that this week, Lord, as no other time in our lives, Lord, that you would help us to consider what you've done for us. And that as we gather together next week, in time of worship, in a time of reflection at your table, Lord, that we would sense the fullness of your deliverance for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.